Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Someone asked, I think Lauren once, I think why he was always putting me in the cold open when I'm, you know, the person with the most off, off camera struggles probably. And I mean, you know, in the show's history, I mean, there's been a few. So I'm right up there with them. And he thought that I got calm when I was in danger because, man, there's nothing you can do when you're in trouble like that. Because let's face it. You, you know, if, if if you think that bombing horribly in your first first few shows on SNL um, will quite possibly cast you out of this business forever, you're right. You're right. If you think the president is watching and almost everyone in the English-speaking world in 45 countries is also watching who will decry you roundly, you're right. The New York Times and, and the San Francisco Chronicle and the Chicago and Miami Herald, you're right. Like, the stakes won't get higher for you, you know? And I just finally went, I, all I know is this. If I panic, I'm so fucked. Let me just fucking be calm and do my best, you know? And that's the only way I thought about it. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited about this week's episode with the longest running cast member in the SNL history, Daryl Hammond. These two episodes are incredible and are something that I will never forget as long as I've been doing this and it's been seven years and over 300 episodes. These shows will bring to light so many things about the process of an artist, the difficulties of overcoming things that you don't control and the power that it takes to move forward and keep being extraordinary. 
Before I get started, I want to let you know that I appreciate everything that you guys do. I'm so grateful for all the letters and emails and social media posts. You guys are incredible. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter, Instagram, or wherever social media is found. Just follow me and send me a message and I'll be glad to get back to you. You can also reach me at barrycats.com. And so without further ado, let me introduce our guest today. Actor comedian Daryl Hammond fondly recalls his first taste of show business at age five, practicing impressions of his family members on the porch of their home in Melbourne, Florida. For years now, Hammond has brought to life a cavalcade of politicians, media figures, celebrities, and newsmakers on television. He's known for being one of the most prolific comedians of his time. He is one of the longest-running cast members in SNL history, and he frequently tours comedy clubs and theaters, boasting a number of brilliant impressions in his act that keep people laughing nationwide. Hammond has brought a great number of wonderful impressions to Saturday Night Live over the years, and television critics and viewers alike have been blown away regarding their accuracy and range and have applauded each and every one of them. Amongst the greatest number of people he has impersonated include Bill Clinton, Sean Connery, Regis Philbin, Dan Rather, John Travolta, Jesse Jackson, Richard Dreyfuss, Jay Leno, and Ted Koppel. In addition to his SNL appearances, Hammond has been seen in a number of feature film and television shows. Daryl starred with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin in El Dorado Pictures, The Devil, and Daniel Webster. He received a tremendous amount of reviews for his portrayal of a deranged but intense criminal defense lawyer in Dick Wolf's Law & Order SVU. Additionally, he did a guest spot on NBC's Third Rock from the Sun. His other film credits include an appearance in Universal's Blues Brothers 2000, which also starred Dan Aykroyd, and Disney's Celtic Pride. In the animation world, he's proud to have played the voice of Master Little in Disney's animated hit The King and I. Recently, Daryl has starred in Bay Street Theater's True, written by Jay Peterson Allen and directed by Matt McGarth. Daryl also finished shooting a TBS pilot, Hound Dogs, as Harry Hound with director Ron Shelton from Bull Durham and White Men Can't Jump. Hammond is also the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, God, If You're Not Up There, I'm Fucked, Misadventures with Fake Noses, Funny Accents, Addiction, and Saturday Night Live, which was released by HarperCollins to rave reviews. In his latest critically acclaimed film coming out this month, Cracked Up, we witness the impact adverse childhood experiences can have across a lifetime through his incredible story. With behind-the-scenes footage detailing how Daryl suffered from debilitating flashbacks, self-injury, and addiction until he came to understand the role that early trauma played in his development. Cracked Up creates an inspiring balance between comedy and tragedy, helping us to understand the effects of childhood trauma and new light, breaking down the barriers of stigma and replacing shame with compassion and hope. The film premiered in New York City this week and will debut in Los Angeles on September 20th and 21st at the Lemley Monica Theater, with both screenings to be followed by a question and answer session with Daryl and the director-producer as well. Following the premieres and openings, the film will be distributed to theaters nationwide. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor. Daryl Hammond. All right, now. I have so many questions to ask you. But yeah, I'm very curious to know what you would, why, 
I would be the subject of one of your podcasts, and I'm flattered as well. You are a defining part of my career. You and your talent and your skill set combined with my tenacity and persistence are a huge part of my life and I always try to point to the blueprints of what worked in business to move the rock up the hill and if you can figure out that as an artist or in any profession what it is you do that succeeds then you can use it again and again in anything. And for the audience, Daryl came up from Florida to New York City when I was a manager there. And he was meeting with different managers. And I had an office at 57th and Broadway, but my actual office was literally the size of a coffee table. There was just room for a desk and a couple of chairs. And I knew Daryl was meeting with a lot of different people. He was so cordial and so nice and so calm, it seemed. And the first question I rolled out with was, well, why are you here? What do you want? Mm -hmm. And Daryl looked at me and said, I came to New York to be on Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, then, we're going to get on Saturday Night Live, and if I don't get you on Saturday Night Live, just go to another manager. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think most managers could pull off what you pulled off, because it wasn't just that you knew someone, or that you could meet someone, or arrange to meet someone that could give me a shot. I don't know if you'll recall this, but I was telling this to someone the other day. Um, you, you wrote three auditions you wrote them um for lauren because lauren had me in the studio twice once after oral surgery which you adjusted the audition somehow to <laughs> accommodate and then one time with the comedy strip so getting me in there was 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 like a like a special ops thing i mean i don't know that the best managers in the world could do that. I mean, you wrote the you wrote the audition. And what's odd is that, as you know, I'm not technically a writer. I certainly wasn't a writer back then, but I think instinctually things channeled through me of what I felt were possible. And one of my favorite things that means so much to me was that when you were testing the second time and the oral surgery thing, let's forget about all the craziness <coughs> that that was about, but you were talking to me and we were putting together the second audition. And what Lauren does a lot of times is that if you don't have a resume and there's nothing on your resume, but you kill that first test, in his mind, the brilliance that he has is like, okay, well, the resume is a blank piece of paper. What, Raisin in the Sun in Melbourne, Florida? That's your... So you didn't have anything technically. Right. So his thought process, I presume, he's not here to say it, was that, well, let's bring him back and see if he can do a different test and blow me away as much as... Uh, again. The first test. 
And then again, yes. Yeah, and so we were putting together the thing, and you had some great stuff still in your arsenal. But I remember asking you, I said, is there any impression you do that's not in your stand-up that maybe, you know, it's not right for your stand-up, but that might be right for this test? And you said, well, I, I can do Ted Koppel. Mm-hmm. And I just sat across from him like, oh my God, let's do a nightline with Ted Koppel and we'll intersperse all these characters in the nightline and create like a mini nightline episode. Yeah. And we rehearsed that. I think I had an office that was empty next to mine or something that we'd go into. With blood <laughs> dripping out of my mouth. <laughs> and we'd run it over and over again. Yeah. Anyway, to make a long story short, one of my greatest and proudest moments, besides you getting the call that you were a cast member on SNL, the first episode of the season, the first cold open coming up from commercial, you as Ted Koppel on Nightline. And that that was an afterthought. You were like, wait a second, before we go in there, is there something that you haven't shown me? Remember this? Yes. Something. And I was like, well, I did Phil Donahue in Spanish for you. <laughs> There's one guy that cocks like him a little bit. I mean, I don't know if you know Ted Cobble. And you're like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Bing, bing, bing. Bells, bells went off. Ding. Got an idea. An aha moment for you. But I think everybody listening, whatever profession you're in, you have those moments where you ask yourself, do I belong in this business? Am I even supposed to be here? What the fuck am I doing? And then there's those other moments that let you know that you're on the right path and that you can have an impact, whether it's alone or with somebody who's gifted that you have a collaboration with. And so when that came up with that cold open, the first cold open of that mm. season your first season you you are a new cast member and you are the main guy on the lead sketch which is the most important sketch of the night that was a defining moment for you but it was also a defining moment for me which let me know you know what i know i've done it before but I can do this if I collaborate with the right person who mixes with my mind and their mind. Yeah, but it it was almost like an action-adventure flick because Lorne Michaels is so smart. And I'll never forget in the second, the one you're talking about, because I remember thinking, you know, they they gave me a couple of Vicodin, and I was fine because I wasn't high. I just had my pain removed, sort of analgesia. So we get in there. And, you know, it's just you and him in the studio, uh, as you know, and and a camera person. And there were times when he was flicking things off his lapel and sort of looking at his watch, you know, in the first, I think, 30 seconds or so. But at one point I saw him look up, like, stop what he was doing and then look up and look at me with those hawk eyes. <laughs> like, I hadn't seen his eyes be that way before, and I went... I might have something. Maybe I got. Maybe I got something. Ted Capital. <laughs> see my honey, big and shiny, makes you giggle to see it wiggle. And remember, a German. Verflucht nach mal. Ich will selbst sehen, ob diese Sache ewig 
Down, <coughs> down wird. Ein hübsches kleines Mädchen nach mir gefragt. Um, and we got the job. Dun, 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 dun. And something else I did, which trying to protect you because I learned long ago this expression that stays with me till this day don't spook the thoroughbred so what was happening awesome. <laughs> what was happening that day and you were getting oral surgery you were all messed up and you had a time for your test and I told SNL, listen, he's got this oral surgery. He's going to have to move back an hour. They said, absolutely not. Get him here now. And I just kept going back and forth. I'll do my best, but this is his health, and I'm not going to call him and get him all riled up. He's got a set ready and whatever. So when you came in, I walked in first, and you saw them screaming at me as you walked in. But they didn't yell at you. I took the bullet and they yelled at me and said, what the fuck are you doing? You told me you have me or whatever. And you walked off in your room to get ready. And I took the bullet. I don't know if you remember that or not. I do. And I remember who was yelling at me. I remember, <laughs> I remember that after that audition, all of a sudden, um, this person gave me their phone number and went, make sure you call me. <laughs> the same person that was trying to take you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that, suffice it to say that, that day was a score big yeah. score beautiful one of the things I remember about you on the show when you were performing and behind the scenes for the most part I know there were moments but for the most part there was a sense that you had on the outside I'm not, I don't know what was happening on the inside you're going to tell me but on the outside you had the demeanor of a cast member that had been there for 10 years. You walked around the hallways with the same step in your gait. There was that slow, methodical thing. You always kept your game face on. It never seemed like you showed people what was happening inside. And so they felt like you were a rock. But you might yeah. not have been the rock, but you were. I, I, I'm aware of what you're talking about and, and others have talked to me about that too. And, um, um, I, I have, I could, there's a lot of, I have a lot of ideas about it, but sure. I was scared, but, um, you know, I, I probably because of my childhood, I, I, I kind of knew danger and I knew what works when you're in danger I'm sorry if this sounds, I don't know if this doesn't sound right, but I knew that, what, you know, one thing I knew about SNL was, was, was what, the main thing was, when Tracy Morgan and I first walked into Lauren's office for the first time, and we walked out of there, and he kind of patted me on the shoulder, and he goes, he goes, uh, shit, ain't no eye rolling up in that motherfucker. <laughs> off on the street you know and I was like yeah he's serious that guy <laughs> that, he's a serious ain't no eye rolling up in that motherfucker I'm like <laughs> okay that's point one but you know 
someone asked, I think Lauren once, I think why he was always putting me in the cold open when I'm, you know, the person with the most off off camera struggles probably. And I mean, you know, in the show's history, I mean, there's been a few, so I'm right up there with them. And he thought that I got calm when I was in danger because man, there's nothing you can do when you're in trouble like that. Because let's face it, you, you know, if, if if you think that bombing horribly in your first first few shows on SNL um, will quite possibly cast you out of this business forever, you're right. You're right. If you think the president is watching and almost everyone in the English-speaking world in 45 countries is also watching who will decry you roundly, you're right. The New York Times and, and the San Francisco Chronicle and the Chicago and Miami Herald, you're right. Like, the stakes won't get higher for you, you know? And I just finally went, I, all I know is this, if I panic, I'm so fucked. Let me just fucking be calm and do my best, you know? And that's the only way I thought about it. Um, but sure, I was scared. Scared all the time, Barry. All the time. I knew all. I knew what the stakes were. You know what I mean? And plus, it's a pretty weird feeling to go, there are three million people plus the president watching you right now. They'll be judgmental. Oh, yeah, they'll put a price tag on what you do here. <laughs> um, that's hard to take. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BarryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Can you take our audience through, you don't have to take them through the whole week, that first week, but can you take them through how you're feeling in certain spots during the week when obviously people don't really know how the system works unless they've listened to me describe it or not, but the first day you roll in there and you think you're rolling in there a certain time and then you're waiting around for three hours for to meet the host yes and the host comes in and he'll pitch you ideas and sometimes you can talk about the round table on meeting where you actually go through your pitches to Lorne mm -hmm. in the office with the host yes and so you're a first time cast member you know that you're really only going to get one shot to pitch something so you knew in your heart you were going to pitch Ted Koppel, or did somebody take you aside and say, you know, uh, Daryl, I think you should pitch Ted Koppel? Um, no, I, 
I, I don't recall pitching Ted Koppel in, in that particular meeting. All I knew was um, I pitched something that <laughs> Lauren hated. <laughs> and then I went, and also Ted Koppel. <laughs> like that. I'm like, well, you know, I pitched this idea. It was really bad, and he, he hated it, and so did everyone else in the room. And then I just went, <laughs> and Ted Koppel. And what if Ted Koppel was there? You know, the Koppel thing landed, obviously, but that wasn't... I was so scared. I, I was fumbling all over the place. And so what the audience knows what happens on Tuesday, all through Tuesday, up until the wee hours of the morning on Wednesday. It could be till four in the morning or five. It could be until noon the next day. Yeah. You're writing sketches, and there's writers all over the place of different levels... But when you're Daryl, it's your first week. So the people who've been there forever, the big writers are writing with them because they want to get their shit on. If they align with Daryl, there's a chance they're never going to get anything on. So Daryl is like a lonely island, pardon the expression. And so chances are somebody came to him during that day or night and said, we're thinking about doing a cold open piece with Ted Koppel. Yeah, whoever wrote that, I'm not sure, I can't remember. Adam McKay usually wrote them, Andrew Steele, Adam McKay usually wrote them. I don't know if that was Adam, I don't know if he was the first sketch or not, but you're right. And Someone so, there went, can I hear the Koppel? And I'm like, did it, the Koppel, or they had seen the audition tape and, I, and decided, yeah, you know what, I wanna write a Ted Koppel. And it was probably one of the, the, the bolder, writers and I might have been Adam McKay I'm not sure got it and so then what happens is on Wednesday you find out which sketches are going to be read at the table and then you find out that your you have uh, picks late 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 uh, uh, Tuesday is it Wednesday Oh, read at the table. No, no, you get you get your you get your sketch in. You're going to get a chance to have a sketch at the table. So it'll be there'll probably be forty five or fifty sketches, and someone will come in and weed through them and go, no, 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 not that one. Sorry, no, sorry, no. I mean, weed through them. Ostensibly, it'd be Steve Higgins or or one of the head writers. But then Wednesday night, you have picks. When you're sitting around after this 36-hour drama, <laughs> so tired, you don't remember why you even wanted to be in comedy. And then they go picks, and then you walk in, and you see these cards on the board, and I saw Nightline, Ted Koppel, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, how do you put words to that? I mean. You can't. And so the next step is now you're doing the blocking for the cameras on Thursday, and part of Friday, too, I believe. And sometimes they shoot parts of sketches and parts of things in advance. But that wasn't one of those things because it was the cold open. And so now you're blocking it and you're doing it. How does it feel while you're doing it on the floor with nobody in the cameras? Do you feel good? You or? feel really scared because nobody's laughing. You know, these are seasoned pros who've seen the best talent in the world historic legendary Madame Tussauds wax museum cut level talent and here you're this new person oh wait he can do a voice great I mean who cares he can do a voice 
and 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 you know how it is comics like to hear a little laughter and no one's laughing so i'm up there i'm doing the piece and there's hammering and there's sawing <laughs> you know and and, and there's a like boom 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 because you know i think it was seinfeld that said you can't and i've seen lauren say this too when you're heading up to the joke there can't be distractions you know but there's hammering you know sawing drilling and you're up there going oh my life is on the fucking line here <laughs> and you can't even fucking hear me like you're no one in this room can hear me and this is it for me got it you know and uh that's pretty fucking scary but um i sucked it up and then saturday comes around and knowing all day that you got the dress rehearsal at 7.30, and you know that after the dress rehearsal, five to seven pieces are cut. Rarely is a cold open cut, but chances are you might not have known that at that point in time. Right. I mean, the other, the other thing I wanted to add to that, the stress text, was someone said to me pretty wisely, look, Lauren knows what's going to get la He's not expecting laughs on this floor. He knows if it's funny or not. I mean, just because they're not laughing doesn't mean he doesn't know that. So I thought, okay, that gives me a little confidence. And then you go out there. Yeah, you're right. Uh, dress rehearsal over. Five or six pieces are going to get cut. Rarely does a cold open ever get cut, but it does. Not only that, they'll sometimes take another piece in the show that's vaguely topical and turn that into the cold open, you know? it's dangerous territory all the time um, in the beginning. And so on Saturday, you're obviously for the dress rehearsal, it is more time to think about things <laughs> and you're getting into your makeup for the first time and you're seeing yourself in the mirror as Ted Koppel with Emmy Award winning hair and makeup people. Yeah. And when it's all done and you're looking at yourself, does that give you more confidence does that give you more anxiety or do you, f you feel invincible because of the makeup i realized that i was getting a power very 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 powerful ally you know and if i was going to go over this rickety bridge in a rainstorm <laughs> I, I had a really powerful ally with me and it, it made me feel better and i just kept thinking just do your just do your part i realized i was there were times when i would do voices on the show even voices i'd done before you know there were times when i wasn't at my best that those guys would cover me and that's just the truth you look exactly like the damn guy that helps a lot you know and the wigs are out of this world and so you have the dress rehearsal and it's the cold open and you come out and it's five, four, three, two, one. And you're on in front of the dress rehearsal audience, which traditionally, to be honest with you, a lot of times is a great audience. I yeah. mean, sometimes they're a little shaky. Well, they didn't expect to get their tickets, many of them, and they're thrilled to death. <laughs> They've been online, many of them, the whole time, and they just found out the night before. Whereas with an, an on-air audience, you know, people that know the cast or know Lauren or they're connected in Congress or something in some way. So, yeah, a lot of times they're, they're quite good. So the cold open goes how many lines in 
you lose all your nerves and you're in autopilot and you're feeling great and you realize holy shit I'm making a difference here I bet if I watched the sketch I could tell you but there has to be where you're going wow this is just like in my backyard (laughs) I'm doing the same thing as I did in my backyard or in my apartment you know or right I remember, you know, when I played a JV football and just as a briefly in high school, and I was pretty good at it. And there was one like the third or fourth game where I was I threw a pass to a couple of people, and one was a touchdown. I thought, Jesus, this is just like my backyard. You know, when you reach that, like this is the same shit I've been doing on the couch. <laughs> this is what I've been doing. You know, when me and Billy Gardell are touring the country, and and the days ends, and we're trying to make each other laugh, and I've been doing it. This is what I do. So there was a point in time where it's simple, you're killing it, and the sketch finishes, you walk back out to that hallway where the makeup people are taking off your stuff. What are you feeling after the dress rehearsal? Oh, walking on air, walking on sunshine, walking on air, walking on sunshine. Oh, and did I do okay? Because no one's acting like I did anything special. (laughs) This was the high spot of my life's prime. I know there won't be higher drama than this because I've been to jail before. I know drama. There won't be higher drama in this person's life. And y'all don't act like this was very important. You know, because these are the pros of the pros of the pros. And plus, it doesn't pay to get too darn excited. It's like John Wooden, the the great UCLA basketball coach, would say, it really didn't pay to go head over heels overboard. But I was that way. I was, you know. It's pretty amazing that no one comes up to you and says, nice job. I think I think that must happen, but I don't remember <laughs> it. Because, oh, and by the way, they've got the same drama, and they're playing for the same stakes, and they don't have extra time. You know, they. I mean, you, if you're a wig person, you've got like 40 wigs floating, and you're three of you. <laughs> You know, and people are giving you notes every second. You're making adjustments. I mean, there's not a lot of time. You know, one of the things I noticed when I took, you know, started being the announcer there a few years ago was, oh, wait, nobody wants to talk to me. I thought we would just hang out and talk about the Yankees and be a rollicking good time. No, they're working. They're working for big, high stakes, you know. So the in-between and just for our audience to know, the cast after the dress rehearsal comes up to Lauren's office and they sit all on the floor up there and Lauren's office is sort of up above the audience behind the final rows of the upper deck there and you find out what sketches are going what adjustments are being made and what sketches are cut Mm -hmm. and so you obviously know that you did really well was there any doubt in your mind that God could this might there be a possibility that this doesn't go for the for air yeah of course so you're in there he says cold open staying I'm sure they made some adjustments to it some lines on the cue cards Mm. but you got the word you're in you're going forward what's the feeling for the live show for you now if you go back to that moment that was different from the dress rehearsal show did you feel a little more of a swagger or did you feel the same sense of danger well the dress rehearsal so 
you're still sort of at that point, like, you know, this might not happen, and it probably shouldn't happen. I'm a, I don't have any... I don't deserve to be here, and, I, and if I am here, I won't. I mean, you're like, it's still, it's still a question mark. It's still an adventure that's not on film yet, you know, that's not permanent yet. You go on air, that now it's history. It'll be recorded and shown forever and ever and ever. So I distinctly remember saying to myself, I'm too scared to do this. Like, I can't do this. And another part of me just went, if you panic, you're done. Get it? If you panic, you're done. That's the consequences of panicking here. I don't know what, where that, maybe that came from high school football, playing football games, maybe some little part of that. Back to times in my life where if I panicked, it would be just a disaster. So I just went out there and and tried to stay as calm as I could. I remember feeling like I was holding onto a guard railing because the only thing I was concentrating on delivering was tonal qual the tonal quality of Ted Koppel and to serve their their words. I mean, you know, there there times when I would be doing a Tina Fey script and a or an Adam McKay script, and I'd be like, man, all I have to do is make sure they understand the words. They were so well written. You know what I mean? And try not to lose the voice. But I was scared as hell. I remember waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning, live, still living in Hell's Kitchen at the time. And uh, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning going, I got to get back over there and start to practice because I failed. I'd say 50% of the times I ever left SNL, I thought I disgraced myself. There's too much going on, Barry. You can't really get a real judgment until days later. You know that. But that first night, so you get done with the live show, your segment, and you come off, and you actually improved from the dress rehearsal to the live show. I'm actually embarrassed to say this. After the rehearsal show, I was like, this is flawless. I don't know how you can do any better i don't even see where there's a spot where he could do better could the sketch be a little tighter maybe but yeah and then the live show i don't even know how it's possible you improved yeah. the dress rehearsal to where I, i'd say it killed i'd say 25 percent harder i didn't know it was possible have you ever been in any of those meetings? I'm sure you have in Lauren's office during between shows. Yes. And he'll go in there and he'll go, um, if that font is, like he'll change the font on a sign or he'll, he'll adjust um, the cleavage in a costume or the, the, the mustache or trim the wig. You know, these are all little things where you're going, why would you do that? But there's all the things that add up to being, to being funnier, and 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 he understands that better than I. And I'm capable of understanding that. It's almost like those decisions are channeling through him. Somebody said something to me the other day. I think it was Richard Gladstein, who's one of Quentin Tarantino's producing partners. 
And he said, I'm smart. I think I have my shit together. You work with Quentin Tarantino and it's like, you're a Chevy and he's a Ferrari. Yeah. And I think that's what makes Lauren so special. But also I think what makes him so special is the same thing that makes you special, danger. And I think the reason why he chose to have you be on the show for as long as you were, because I think it's possible, I presume, that he saw a little bit of himself in you. Somebody who was a consummate perfectionist, who looked at every detail with a different eye, almost like he had eyes in the back of his head. And he approached the show with a sense of calm, even though there probably was a lot of stuff going on inside of him as well. Yeah. So he works well with danger. You work well with danger. And who do you want on the front lines? You want somebody who is going to be able to be the way you want them to be yeah i mean he did say that once it's like there are people who say you know this is one of the craziest people that ever walked into this building here's a guy that's been taken out of here in a straitjacket and yet you're entrusting your baby that cold open the most important real estate and show business arguably besides the first few minutes of the oscars and you're giving the keys to him and he's like when he's in danger he just gets focused and you can't teach it and i don't care how talented you are and i think part of him betting on a lot of people have never done it before is because somebody bet on him on television when he hadn't done it before and if somebody hadn't given him that first opportunity when it technically on his resume on paper maybe he wasn't ready to do television, but he proved that he was ready. And so in you, he found that person that mirrored him. I loved his expression. Um, the show doesn't go on because it's ready. It goes on because it's 1130. That's the, that's our, that's the game. It's our territory. It's what happens here, you know? And whatever, whatever reason, I was like, I get it. I get that. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career 
forever. Hey, everybody. And I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount, a $100 discount, and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the air doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like, but the air inside my house, it feels heavy at times before I got this product. And now it got rid of all the bad air in my house, the dust, the pet hair, the pollen. It just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home. And for me, when I got this product, it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house. And it's normally $600. And you can check Amazon right now and you'll see. But for all of you listening, today, I can offer you $300 off. $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry, and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. I think your life, which we'll probably get into shortly, there was a lot of danger. There was a lot of holes blown through you. The question I want to ask you before we talk about it, and the audience is probably going to wonder what's going on here, but I've always wanted to ask you this, and I never have. If you hadn't gone through all the things that you went through as a child, which we're going to talk about, would you be as talented and brilliant and successful in the entertainment business if you had the white picket fence, the dog, the nice family that never did anything that bothered you or hurt you, just that calm existence, that person you meet that's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I had a great, I never went through any problem. Yeah. Do you think that you would be as successful as you are today? I would I might have had still had the ability but I wouldn't have been so driven to use it move to New York go through all the me and me and Billy Gardell driving around the country for eight years trying to learn how to be funny you know what people go through I wouldn't have been driven to go through all of that when I had a college education under my belt I wouldn't have risked everything and you know I decided I wanted to be on SNL a long time after I was I had passed the age limit practically I mean that's a, I know when you came in my office you might have been close to 40 yeah I mean they cast me when I was 39 yeah. but I think you picked me up and we started working together when I was like 37 which is 
about 16 years too late. You know, it's it's late. I'm going to say that you wouldn't have gotten Saturday Night Live if you hadn't had the experiences you had because I think that made you into an incredibly powerful and gifted you channeled all that and as Larry Moss used to say when you have the hole blown through you the only way an artist fills the hole with the performances the drive that keep going because once you do something great and then an hour later the hole starts getting bigger again and you got to do something else to feed it and so after Ted Koppel on SNL one of the things that we didn't share which is a moment we had together and I'm paraphrasing but that the party afterwards and I was so excited for you and your first thing that you rolled out with was well we got to get going on next week I got to figure out what I'm doing next week I got to get on next week and I got to do something great next week the moment was literally packed away and now it was like the hole was emptying again and you had to fill the hole again true 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 i wonder about it i mean like you know i i, I have always had synesthesia where i color code everything and what does that mean color coding everything it means everything has a color if i think about it like for instance, I never did any of my characters um, that I didn't color code them first. I never did any any. I never did any read throughs where there wasn't magic marker and many different colors throughout because I would assign a color. What do the colors mean, and why do you assign a color to a certain thing? You don't really know why. It except the the colors are are the gateway to whatever your gifts are. I don't know why Pee Wee Herman is green and Daffy Duck is green, but so is Richard Dreyfuss, but Porky Pig is yellow. Could you come up with one thing that connected them all together with green or no? No. It's just that when I'm starting to learn them, when I was maybe, I don't know, between the age of five and ten, we uh, had just moved to a new house. And I remember thinking... Um, if I could become these people, if I could become them, then they couldn't hurt me. Like, that's where this whole system had to go. Like, I got to get out of here. And my the only thing my little brain could come up with is then you have to be like them. You've got to be like them. You've got to be a Nazi. You've got to put on the uniform. You know, you've got to speak the language. You've got to do it or you won't get the fuck out of here. Because where I came from, if those people sensed that you disapproved of them, boy, it'll make it a lot worse on you. So I learned to make my mother laugh. I learned how to make them laugh. I learned, the, I learned their value systems. I watched them. What turns them on? What do they all agree on? Where will I nod my head when I'm sitting in, you know, on a beach blanket with two families? Where will I go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm? Like, let me blend in there, and maybe they won't hurt me. But I don't know what the synesthesia is all about. I've never been able to do math, for instance, until they put me in an experimental school, and 
the number the the categories of numbers were uh you know the, the from one to fifty would be red from fifty to hundred would be green i mean they i did my numbers with colors instead of numbers i I could add now I could subtract now I could do division now if there were colors involved so my what the doctors have told me was that synesthesia and the ability to enter to entertain myself kind of came from the brain's brilliant response to horror the trauma i mean have you ever heard about the dachau drawings or the the auschwitz drawings of children that were in the camp and and they would draw the situation and they would draw people but the guards might look like fairies or elves or something the brain had to convert this into something and 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 then it did and i don't know why as you say i mean there's going to be a lot of stuff that i just don't know why just don't understand when i i started researching uh god because i kind of was hoping there would be one what age um it was after i i had sex for the first time so 14 and i had sex and nothing happened to me and i began to worry that there wasn't a god but it wasn't too much older when i started reading like the sermon on the mount and trying to find translations of aramaic to english and and all of that to see what jesus actually said and it wasn't until I was much older, you know, I mean, not much older, I would say late 20s, early 30s. But I, what made me believe in God, and you'll probably cut this out of the part, but this is my, well, I was reading this out. story uh, in Smithsonian Magazine about Einstein. Einstein's sitting in a field and he's watching a little girl pick flowers, sitting next to a stationary freight train it occurs to him that the same force of gravity that's holding the little girl down is also holding the freight train down at the same time, but applying vastly different amounts of force. In other words, making a calculation as to how much force to use, does gravity then have perception? And he's sitting there going, does gravity have perception? And you remember later on, I mean, he made a, he made a comment where he said, you know, it, it, I think it was one of the Nobel Prize conferences where he said, um, God doesn't play dice with the universe because they were talking about chaos theories. Like, and they're like, well, how do you explain it? He goes, that's the point. I can't explain it. And if the guy that hung those planets and spoke world, those oceans into existence sat down right next to me and explained the whole thing, I couldn't understand it. And I'm fucking Einstein. <laughs> I'm fucking Einstein, yo. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I could really go, yeah, whoever whoever hung, hangs planets in the air ain't no accountant. Certainly is a deity of some kind. At least that you know gave me a little relief. And if Einstein looks at things and goes, I, you know, I don't get it. I, it's okay for me to do that, too. I don't know where synesthesia came from or what it was about, but I just know it was the reason I'm alive today when this doctor, I was in this hospital in upstate New York. Barry, I was diagnosed for, misdiagnosed for 20-something years. Like, no one really knew what was wrong with me. 
Starting at what age did you go to the doctor for your first diagnosis? When I went 21, uh, oh, not 21, uh, I guess maybe when I first went to the University of Florida, when we went in, when I went in there and I was so uh, fucked up, I couldn't hear people when they were talking to me. I couldn't. And I went and I remember the guy says to me, um, we don't have... Well, we don't have what you need here. Like, I was like, well, this, this University of Florida is like, right, but you need more sophisticated treatment than we're able to, to give you. Like, we don't know what's wrong with you. And this is, I was 19 years old. So what are you feeling that gets you to walk into the hospital? So there always has to be a moment that happens where you're sick and tired of sick and tired of this happening. What happened to make you in the 24 hours before that that made you go to the hospital? A, my next door neighbor in Melbourne, Florida had been to the mental health infirmary and I knew about it. He had even tried, he'd even cut his wrist once. But B, when this happened, I, my, I was standing in the Piccadilly apartment complex which I hope is still there in that wonderful city, out by the pool, and a woman said something to me, and Barry, I couldn't hear her. And this guy, there was this older fellow that was out by the pool. I don't know what he was doing out there. He comes up to me. He's like, hey, man, you all right? I'm like, he's like, need to go to the doctor or something I'm like I think so he's like let me take you to the doctor I go I have a car I have a blue Plymouth the keys are in there he's like I'll, t I'll take you to the doctor and I went over there and of course they went well you know what the fuck is wrong with you brah but here's some Melville some Triville and some Melorill what were those three drugs what were they for depression and psychosis could you define what kind of psychosis you had? I had no psychosis. Oh. They were like, listen, when people come in and, and can't and we can't explain why they're so terrified, at this time in history, we're going to say they're bipolar or we're going to say they're psychotic. Because there's no real way to explain this. And this is 1985 or something like that? Seventy. Late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. Got it. Okay, and so that's the first doctor. They say we got to send you somewhere else. And well, so they put me on these drugs, and just knocked and kept me dead for the rest of my time there. They're soul killers. They they knock. They stop your humanity. They stop your sex drive. They stop everything. They stop your care. I mean, whatever the thing that makes you different than the hunters and gatherers of the forest that gets stopped so you get out of there what's next um i start alcohol and alcohol served me wonderfully for a number of years and then i moved to new york city and now drank was, for five years what's interesting about you with alcohol if you'll allow me to say this is that true to form as you on the outside as a performer 
not knowing what's happening on the inside. Nobody knows what's happening on the inside. I normally have a great understanding of whether somebody's drinking and what they're doing or doing drugs or however it is. You didn't show the world that you were an alcoholic. It never yeah. felt like you were powerless over it all because you always had that thing where you were that stayed calm person. So that's why you fooled me. You fooled a lot of other people too because I never drank on the day of a show. And when you tell someone, wait, you can pick and choose if you're going to drink, you're, you can't be an alcoholic. What I say is alcohol was a solution. And it was one that I employed from, t from time to time, but alcohol never put me in a hospital. I never withdrew from alcohol. You know, I had problems with opiates and cocaine later on. But everyone else was full, too, because I didn't fit the profile. I didn't have liver damage. I didn't fuck my job up over it. But, you know, when I was home alone, I might have hit it a little hard, though. So... How many hospitals before you go to a place and somebody finally tells you something that makes sense and there's a plan or at least some kind of blueprint to getting better? 39. 39. So that's when I knew you. I didn't know you were going to these hospitals. No, 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 no. I, I was cutting when you knew me. Yes, I knew that. But... I would go to, if you consider different psych wards. This is so strange to say. I actually felt really great about the relationship we had that you were able to tell me about the cutting. Well, Lauren knew about it too. But Lauren's deal with me was um, that you would tell any hobbled player or injured player, like, our agreement is thus. If you play as well as I know you can play, you stay in the lineup. But if you're not, I'll take you out. And is that fair? And I'm like, yeah. It's like, okay. Great analogy. But it is. You know, Lauren used to like walk walk up to me like Casey Stengel would walk up to a, <laughs> a Met. You know, Casey Stengel would walk up to people and go, you'd look at him for a second and you go, can you hit this guy? The guy goes, oh, yeah, I, I can hit him. He's like, I don't believe you. <laughs> and, you know, out of the, I don't know how many cold opens I did, you know, Lauren would always come out and he would just look at me like, okay, okay, all right, like that. He knew that I could hit the guy, so to speak. When was the first time that Lauren took you aside, just you and him, no one else, but in a public setting, not necessarily a private setting, but just where it could have been on the set, could have been at the party took you aside looked you in the eyes and said great job uh <clears throat> the only time i remember spending any time with him was we we had gone to the host dinner on orso and explain the host dinner for our audience i, I can't explain it. <laughs> i'll explain it so this weird thing happens where Lauren has a dinner with the host and he invites one, maybe two cast members out to a dinner. Sometimes could possibly be like behind home play to the Yankee game. Sometimes it could be anything. And you don't even know when you're being invited, how you're being invited. And if you have plans, you're breaking them because you're going. 
I remember the first night I got invited to the host dinner, and I said to a particular person there, she's like, you're going to the host dinner tonight. I'm like, I, gotta, I have a Ted Koppel sketch. I'll, and she's like, look, motherfucker, I got you this job, and you're going to that fucking dinner. <laughs> I'm like, but I'll be tired and shit. I'll be... I was like, oh, wait. I think I know who that is. <laughs> I got you this fucking job, and you're going to that goddamn dinner. I'm like, all right, okay. So I went to the dinner. And I have no problem saying it because one of the most original, unique, and fascinating Yin's to Lorne's Yang, Marcy Klein. It felt like you were talking to a sailor who was a supermodel. She looked kind of like a supermodel. She was beautiful erudite connected cultured but um but she would grab a snake (laughs) and strangle up she would strangle a python if 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 it threatened lauren in any way i mean i i know that that she protected that guy and she protected me yes she did she uh called herself my rabbi and she was she loved me i loved her but my first exchange with her was kind of cross <laughs> <laughs> look motherfucker I got you this job you know later on I was like she, you know I, she said something to me I was like she's like y- you don't know where you work you this isn't earth okay this is not earth so let me tell you where you work go to that dinner getting back so you finally figured out the blueprint on how to make you feel better but you were still doing once some of those things were taken care of, then you went into something else. I'm not sure what you mean. Drugs? Yeah. You found some solutions to the way you were feeling, but then you dipped your foot in the pool in other places. Um, you, are you talking about different drugs or yeah. different behaviors? And different behaviors, too. They were all solutions. And I tried booze as much as I tried coke or... Or anything else, or cutting. Cutting was also a solution. And how do you finally realize that none of those things are a solution? Well, when you go from doctor to doctor to doctor, and they all, you got to remember, you know, there's a documentary coming out about the book, and everyone will say that it's about SNL, or it's about this, or it's about that, or I won't let anyone say that it's a getting sober story or a getting clean story. You know, it's a story about a doctor. It's a story about the first guy who looked at me and could see what was wrong with me. A guy that's 50 years ahead of his time. And uh, I don't know if you can see it. I'll show you really briefly. I'll give you, I can demonstrate. See, most of these are really small. See how small? Yeah. So if there's 60, 60 something of them, they all served a purpose, but that wasn't to die. I was supposed to die from that. It wasn't until this last one. These are like, I don't know what the scratches they are. Maybe I scratched myself in my sleep. But here, see the last one? Yes. That one's for death. That's the one, because usually if I just went to the ER, they'd go, he's not crazy enough to keep here. Okay? I, he's a cutter. That doesn't mean he's going to die. And it's not the same thing as being suicidal. So it wasn't until that final big one where they went, okay, now he's going to the hospital. Now he's, we're going to lock him up. 
And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatru, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life and instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. But when I was 27 and I came up with this idea, there was this book by a guy named Edwards Deming who assisted in building Nagasaki after World War II. And his idea, his theory was if you make small incremental changes over a period of time they snowball into something giant so by the time Barry Katz got to me I'd been practicing voices by myself from the age of 27 trying to make one improvement a week and I didn't always I probably made 25 improvements every year but that's a lot of improvement As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.